Have you ever watched a movie or read a book all the way to the conclusion of it, finding yourself so intrigued by the resolution to the conflict in the story that you want to read the book all over again or watch the movie? Often when we're consuming media or reading a book, we are so focused on the conflict and the resolution, we miss some of the details that help inform the overarching resolution to the story. Knowing the end of the story allows the viewer or reader to read at a different pace, to have a different perspective on what they read. They already know the end of the story and it allows them to enjoy the ride and enjoy Uh, them to see how the characters develop and and how the author leaves little breadcrumbs throughout perhaps that you missed the first time you were exposed. This morning in our continued study of Genesis, I want us, before we jump into the, the story this morning, to fast forward to the end. Now many of you this morning, I trust, perhaps all already know the end of the story, you know uh, how... uh, The brothers reconcile and and how everything kind of resolves uh, well. And you know that that really famous passage, perhaps one of the only passages you know of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And that's where I want us to go this morning, kind of go to the end of the book and then work backwards a bit just so that we have sort of the conclusion in mind, lest, and this is why I want us to do this, lest we are tempted to wrongly understand what Joseph is doing in the narrative. In other words, if you don't know the end of the story, which again would have been the perspective of the original readers, they knew the end of the story. And their perspective is the perspective I want to give you before we go through the text, lest you start lumping things on Joseph that are not true. As you see the way he treats his brothers. So if you will, if you have your Bibles open, maybe you've already got to 42. You're a little bit closer, so go to chapter 50 now. There you go. So chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50. I want you to just note a couple of things at the end of the story. At the very end of Genesis, Jacob has died. Joseph is left with his brothers. And Joseph's brothers, his, his, his ten brothers that sold him into slavery, are scared for their life because they think that, that Joseph has only been nice to them over these, these years because their father was still alive. And so now that Jacob's dead, they're kind of like worrying, like, is Joseph going to like, you know, throw the book at us, if you will. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent message to Joseph saying, your father, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide. For your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, as the story concludes in the end of Genesis, we see that Joseph doesn't meet their injustice with greater justice, but with mercy and kindness and love. In other words, he doesn't meet them merely with mercy, but with grace. As he says, I'm not only going to forgive you, but I'm going to bless you and provide for you. Friends, that is the theme of all of the book of Genesis. Isn't it frustrating you have to get all the way through 50 chapters to figure out that's what the whole point of the story was? 
that God saves through the evil intentions of men to bring about his purposes. That God uses even wicked people like Joseph's ten brothers to save for his glory. Before we step into the book, I wanted to sort of step back. So we're going we're gonna to go back to our story here in just a moment. But let's remind ourselves of where we begin, particularly if you're just kind of joining us this morning. The story of Joseph began in chapter 37. The favorite son of Jacob, named Joseph, was despised and rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. He was enslaved in the home of an Egyptian named Potiphar, where he was seduced by Potiphar's wife and falsely accused of sexual assault. This led to his long imprisonment, where he would meet the cupbearer and baker of the king His time of suffering led ultimately to his exaltation, as we considered last week, that God appointed his suffering servant to suffer that he might save. God was with Joseph wherever he went, whether he was in the pit, in the slave house, in the prison, or in the palace. God was with Joseph, bringing about his sovereign purposes through his life. Everything Joseph touched was blessed. Wherever he went, people were blessed by Joseph. But God wasn't blessing Joseph or allowing him to suffer without purpose. God was up to something far more bigger, as we saw last week. That God was saving the people of Israel through the sufferings of his servant, King. As we saw in chapter 50, Joseph knew at some point, we don't know when, We don't know when it kind of came to him by revelation. It could have been there in chapter 37 when he had those dreams about his family bowing that he realized that God was up to something, doing something far bigger. But we know the end. We know that Joseph knew that God was doing something through his life to save God's people. That his purpose, God's purpose, was to sovereignly save through the sufferings of his servant King. Let's look this morning. And what I'm going to do, because we're covering chapters 42 through 45, which is a very long section of Scripture, there is a lot of repetition as the characters uh, repeat what has happened previously. Or as they report back to their father, they repeat much of the detail. We're we're not going to read all of it. but, But chapter 43 really helps to summarize what's going on. It clues us in on chapter 42 and the details. And I'll give us a a summary. And then I want us to look at at four aspects of God's grace displayed through this narrative. So Genesis chapter 43, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles open, Genesis chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man, that is Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was the answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that he may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then you let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then then do this. 
Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the men. A little balm and a little money, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you before him the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Well, friends, I want to summarize the story in this way. Essentially, this is what happened. In chapter 42, we are told because the famine was so bad that Joseph, or rather, yeah, Jacob, sends Joseph's ten brothers. Uh, He doesn't even call him his own sons. So, so Joseph's ten brothers, you know the ten brothers who sold him into slavery? Those ten brothers go down to Egypt to buy grain. And it just happened, the very person they had to go buy the grain from was their, big bro- their little brother Joseph, the one they had sold into slavery. They don't recognize him, but Joseph does. And Joseph begins to question them. Ultimately, Joseph takes Simeon, one of the brothers, Uh, perhaps the ringleader, the one who sold him into slavery, we really don't know, and imprisons him and sends the other brothers back to Canaan to get their youngest brother, Benjamin. Chapter 43, what we just read, it will tell us that ultimately Jacob will allow the brothers, the the nine brothers, to return to get Simeon and to, to take Benjamin. In chapter 44, uh, what will happen is Joseph will test the brothers, to see whether or not they've really turned a corner, whether or not they've really repented. And basically what he does is he accuses Benjamin of stealing something from him. This ultimately leads Judah to stand up and be a man for the first time in his life and prove himself to be the leader that God's people needed. In chapter 45, ultimately Joseph will reveal his identity to his brothers And reveal to us that he had forgiven them long before he ever met them in chapter 42. And that he knew that God was up to something much bigger. And so this morning, the point of this sermon, the point, if we were to summarize chapters 42 through 43, we could summarize it in this short sentence. Our God saves by his sovereign grace. Our God saves by his sovereign grace. Through the sacrificial forgiveness Of both Judah and Joseph, true reconciliation begins and unity among God's people is preserved. So the purpose of our time this morning is to remind us that God saves by his sovereign grace alone. Period. And that God's sovereign grace is a meticulous sovereignty. Now let me define for you briefly in just a couple words, God's sovereignty. It's very similar to the, another biblical word, God's providence. Uh, providence sounds like provision that God provides. God provides for his creation. He, he providentially cares. God's sovereignty deals more specifically with his rule and reign over his creation. Uh, the Bible uses words like kings and kingdoms. As a way to describe God's sovereignty, his rule over his creation. In other words, we do not believe that our God is a deity that just sort of got this world going and then stepped away. This is what deists believe. Deists believe that that God is separate from his creation. He's not involved in the details of it. But if you were to read your Bible, and particularly the Joseph narrative, you see that God is meticulously ruling over the affairs of his people. Now, one often pitfall, as one considers God's sovereignty, is to pit God's sovereignty against human responsibility. If you were paying attention as you read our statement of faith earlier, the the crafters of that, going back to the New Hampshire Confession of Faith in 1833, made very clear that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. That God doesn't make us do anything, 
but that when God acts, it is in accord with the free will of man. That we have responsibility to respond to God's affairs, as we see in the story in Genesis chapters 42 through 45. That the brothers had to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. That, the, that Joseph had to forgive. God's sovereignty working through the affairs of men. So this morning, I want us to consider these sort of four aspects we see in the story of God's grace. We're going to leave out a lot of details, which I ask for your forgiveness, and I hope that I can do these stories justice. In chapter 42, we'll see very briefly that God's sovereign grace exposes guilt. That God exposes the guilt of Joseph's brothers. In chapter 43, we see God's sovereign grace forgives sin. As Joseph forgives the sins, not in word, but in deed, of his brothers. In chapter 44, we see that God's sovereign grace loves sacrificially. As as Joseph demonstrates the depth of God's love as he loves and blesses his brothers, the very men who left him screaming in a pit in the wilderness. And fourth and finally, we see in chapter 45, God's sovereign grace is meant to reconcile fully. God saves to reconcile his people. Well, let's look very briefly at chapter 42. We heard some of the details of chapter 42 in the scripture reading as I read in 43. The narrator began the story by telling us that Joseph's brothers have gone down to Egypt to buy grain. It's now been two years of the famine, and Jacob must act quickly lest his family die. You and I are so accustomed to running down to the grocery store or hitting up McDonald's if we need something to eat. Uh, These folks didn't have that that luxury, right? There there wasn't a a farmer's market that they could go and buy food from. In, In the midst of a famine that was, we are told, a global famine, there was no food to be found. There was nothing. God had such orchestrated the events of this time, that the only place they could go down to was to buy food from Joseph in Egypt. God was the one who brought together the brothers. God was the one behind the whole thing. And as the brothers come into town, there in chapter 42, in verses 6 through 11, we're told that they come and immediately find Joseph and bow down. Now, they don't know that it's Joseph. They're they're completely unawares. It's, It's been some 20 years Naturally, the brothers believe that he has been traded off, perhaps even dead by this time. But we're told that Joseph immediately identifies. After all, they were bearded Semites in Egypt. They would have stood out in the crowd. And Joseph begins to sort of let them squirm a bit as he begins to question him and and there's a tension that's created as you read the story one wonders how will joseph treat we were told in chapter 41 that joseph is the second in command he has a lot of authority he could have taken those 10 brothers and immediately imprisoned them for life perhaps even having them executed without cause Joseph could have trumped up charges as he as he kind of does in chapter 44 and planted something on them that would have led to their imprisonment. But rather. The reader is thinking, how will Joseph pay back what his brothers have done? Well, thankfully, as the story unfolds, he he doesn't inflict justice upon them. But rather mercy. Well, as the story continues, Joseph's brothers are questioned And ultimately, Joseph, knowing that they're not spies, he asked them to prove that they're not spies by going back to Canaan and getting their little brother, Benjamin. The brothers know their father won't let this happen because Benjamin is is Joseph's brother of Jacob's favorite wife. He is his favorite son, the one that replaced Joseph. Ultimately, Joseph tests them to see if they've really changed He wants to know if 20 years has changed his brothers at all or if they are the same cold, calculating individuals they have always been. Will they go and get their brother? Ultimately, what Joseph does is he locks up Simeon, 
He does this to sort of test them to see if they'll just sort of leave Simeon for dead the way they left him for dead. Ultimately, the brothers think this is happening to them as some sort of recompense because of their sinful acts. And the reader is meant to understand that what God is doing is revealing the guilt of the brothers, sort of forcing them to reconcile with their sin. Their consciences clearly are seared because of their act. If you want to just see one example of that, if you look there at verse 21, as Joseph is questioning these brothers, they've already, he's locked them up for three days and he's telling them to go back and get your, go get Benjamin, I'm going to keep Simeon locked up. And look what they said. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They reveal to us much more of the story that, than we were told in chapter 37. In that when they left their brother in that pit, he screamed for his life. Bloody screams. He was begging them, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And they were cold and calculating. They ignored his pleas for mercy. But ultimately, we see in the text that their confession of their wrongdoing leads Joseph to to run out of the room weeping because of his brother's acknowledgement that what they did was wrong. Perhaps no longer they would be cold and calculating as they once were. Yet Joseph continues to be merciful towards them and allows them to return home. And on their way back, they find that money is discovered in their sacks. The money that was supposed to be used to buy the grain Joseph put it back, had his servants put it back. And the brothers, again, reflecting on this, think that it's some sort of omen from God, that God is punishing them. But what God was doing was meeting them with his sovereign grace and causing them to reflect upon their actions. By God's grace, he was using these events to expose their guilt before themselves. Before they could be reconciled, they themselves needed to get their hearts changed. And the story demonstrates how much their hearts have changed. As Judah rises above the rest as one who's no longer governed by self-gratification, but by self-sacrifice. The author of Hebrews reminds us that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, God graciously exposes our guilt. A part of God's sovereign grace in salvation is that he confronts us in our sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a whitewashing of sin. Jesus Christ did not come to pat you on the back and say, hey, look, I know you made a mistake. It's okay. You cannot look at the cross and see Christ's bloody body and think that sin is just okay with God. But rather, we see that in Christ, God deals with sin in a serious way. And a part of God's sovereign grace is exposing our sin. Friend, do you you recognize it as grace? It's hard grace. Sometimes God's grace isn't squishy like a teddy bear. You know, so often we think of grace as, oh, it's warm and it makes us feel good. But, but friend, God's love for us is to expose us sin, our sin. It is no loving thing of God to allow us to perpetuate rebellion against him. And so by his sovereign grace, God exposes the guilt of Joseph's brothers. And it was by grace alone That the Lord exposed the the guilt and sin in your life. That's what we sing in in Oh Great God. Do you you ever ever listen to what you sing? Do you ever ever pay attention to what you're actually singing? Verse 2 is a very strong verse of Oh Great God. I had no taste for heaven's joys. In other words, what what that song is saying is you didn't want to come to Jesus. You never wanted Jesus. It wasn't until the Spirit of God gave you life that you were able to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, it it required God confronting you in your sin and exposing and shining the light of His grace upon you that then you responded. 
the Spirit gave you life. Well, God exposes our guilt, but he also forgives our sin. And one of the things we see in chapter 43, I hope, is, is that Joseph's kindness to forgive his brothers. These brothers were bad. They were wicked. They were wicked. Levi and Simeon slaughtered an entire town as retribution. Reuben, incest with his, his mother in order to try to take the throne from his father. Judah impregnates his daughter-in-law. We could go on and on and on. These guys were wicked beyond belief. Then they collectively sell their brother into slavery and perpetuate a lie to their father and cause him grief upon grief so much that he says, I'll go to, I'll go to death grieving. And what we see in chapter 43 is they are met with tremendous forgiveness. Joseph's already forgiven his brothers. And as the story unfolded, we, we saw there that in chapter 43 that Joseph is working forgiveness in the life. But one particular character rises up, and that's Judah. He'll be the one that will take the blame. He's the one that will work salvation. A couple of things I want to point out to you is as Joseph's brothers return there at the end of chapter 43. They're back in town. And as they arrive back in town, I want you to see how they're met with the forgiving love of Joseph. They are scared. Their brother Simeon's locked up. Now they've got their little brother Benjamin with them. They don't know what's going to happen. Of course, they don't know Joseph's true identity. They, just, they call him a man, the man. He's the one who has power. He's the one in control of the situation. But what Joseph does is extravagant. He invites his brothers to his home. And he puts together a giant feast for them. He dodes on his brothers and even more on his little brother Benjamin. As we're told, he gives him five times the portions that the others. And the brothers look at amazement at one another. Look at verse 18. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sack the first time that we were brought in. That he might assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our, seize our donkeys. You see, this, they, they are, they're afraid. They think they've been brought to Joseph's house to die. That Joseph is, is going to, to kill them. But instead, they are met with Joseph's kindness. As the story continues in verse 26, uh, we are told that, that Joseph warmingly loves his brothers. Verse 29, he blesses his brother Benjamin. Grace, God, be gracious to you, he says. And then finally there in verse 34, portions were taken to him from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as, as any of theirs. And then there at the end of verse 33, we see that they, the men, the brothers, looked at one another in amazement. What were they amazed at? They were amazed at the grace of God displayed through Joseph and that he had forgiven them. What they deserved was imprisonment. What they deserved was death. They had terribly treated him. They didn't deserve to be, be given a, a banquet and a feast and, and to drink and be merry with Joseph. They, they deserved. And, and for you and I, we might be tempted to say, yeah, Joseph, you need to get back at them. But Joseph forgave them. And by grace alone, the Lord forgives our iniquity. This is tremendous to think about how much God worked through these sinful men. These were not good people. These were not the cream of the crop. These men were vile and rebellious against this sovereign God, yet he was still patient with them, lovingly causing them and meeting them with forgiveness. Friend, it is a reminder to us that we do not deserve forgiveness from God. No more than Joseph's brothers deserve forgiveness. But Joseph displays the forgiveness of the Lord toward us. You see, mercy is not just not being punished. But we are given the grace of God. So to be merciful toward somebody is, is to say, look, I'm not going to punish you. But what Joseph does here is he is gracious towards them. He doesn't just forgive them. He blesses them. This, of course, is what Paul 
similarly writes to us in Ephesians chapter 1, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Joseph lavished these blessings upon his brothers in chapter 43, so God lavishes his grace upon us in forgiving our sins and adopting us into his family. Friends, it is a reminder this morning that our sins are forgiven by grace alone, not because we merit them. Grace is unmerited favor as displayed through Joseph's actions to his brothers. In this way, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ who forgives our sins through his death. As we continue to see the unfolding scene, they're now at Joseph's house. They've just feasted. Their bellies are full. And they're ready to go home. And as chapter 44 opens, we are told that Joseph continues to bless his brothers by providing more and more for them. He loads their donkeys down. He puts the money back. So now they have not only the money they they had the first time and the second time. We're told that Joseph wants to test his brothers one last time to just see if they've really changed. Has God really transformed them? And so he tells his servant to hide his silver cup, Joseph's cup, in the pack of Benjamin. And as the story unfolds, the servant catches up with the brothers and he accuses them of theft. And he says, you've stolen Joseph's cup. He's blessed you. He's loved you. He's demonstrated kindness towards you. And you would you would repay him by stealing something? Really? And the brothers, of course, are are frustrated that they, they find themselves to be innocent of stealing the cup. And Joseph before them says, Look, whoever stole the cup, I'll imprison. He knows Benjamin, and he knows what will happen. And the point of the story is for us to understand not so much about Joseph, but really Judah. In chapter 44, we see Judah rise above the other brothers and stand in the place of his his brother. And what we see something displayed is not only Joseph's love, but Judah's love. We see a transformation before our eyes. The one who loved nothing but self-gratification. Chapter 38, Judah could be described as a self-lover. He loved himself more than any others. But in chapter 44, Judah is a lover of others more than he is a lover of self. As he will throw himself upon the altar in the place of Benjamin. From the interrogation in chapter 42 to the outright accusation in chapter 44, Joseph may seem unfair to his brothers. But because we already read chapter 45, we know that that Joseph has a bigger goal in mind. He knows what the Lord is doing. And in loving kindness, he is revealing the greater purpose to his brothers. If you have your Bibles open, continually looking here in chapter 44, in verses 14 through the end of the chapter... Judah becomes the central figure in the narrative as he stands up and seeks the place of his brother Benjamin. Joseph accuses him and says, listen, Benjamin's going to be imprisoned. And Judah says, no, he's not. I want you to imprison me in his place. There in verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah goes on to recount in the following verses in in the rest of the chapter the encounter they had with Joseph in chapter 42 and retells the conversation they had with their father in chapter 43. And then in verse 30, so if you look down there at verse 30, Judah lays out his case to Joseph. And it's of significant importance. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, that is Benjamin, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, 
as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. That is Jacob will die and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. In other words, here's Judas plea. If we come back empty handed without Benjamin, it's going to send our father into shock. He's going to be so upset, so grieved that Benjamin is not with us that he will die instantaneously. This, of course, leads Joseph to respond with compassion and understanding. But the point you want to see is that Judah appeals to the welfare of their father as the motivation for Joseph to allow Judah to stay and Benjamin to leave. The one who exchanged his moral virtue for a prostitute has changed. He is now willing to give his own life to save his younger brother. When he, 20 years earlier, was willing to give himself and to profit off of selling Joseph into slavery. Judah, remember, was the one who was going to profit. We are told here that Judah himself would sacrifice. The story is a picture of Jesus. Judah is a type of Christ. Of course, it is through the line of Judah that, that Jesus comes. One who would sacrifice himself in order to please his father and save God's people. is a similar theme repeated throughout the Gospel of John. As Jesus continually confronted the religious leaders with this phrase, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I hear and I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For Jesus, the food that he ate and drank was the will of his father. He cared about his father. And Judah, here in this passage, came to give glory to his father and to save his family from grief. It is this sacrificial love that Judah displays is the the tapestry, the model that we see again and again throughout the Bible. As one greater than Judah would come to give his self as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Jesus displays his love for us to honor his father by giving his life for him, for us on the cross. God's sovereign grace is is not merely a goal of salvation, but reconciliation. To bring about our adoption through propitiation as God's sovereign grace we see in chapter 45 ultimately leads to a reconciliation between God and these brothers. Look very, very briefly in the time we have left in chapter 45. Again, much of the detail has been laughed out, but, but again, I just want to focus on some key verses here in chapter 45 and then just sort of bring it all together for us. Well, naturally, Joseph is overcome with emotion. Judah's plea works. His appeal to his father's grief works. And he's overwhelmed by love and compassion. Love and compassion of Judah's plea. Imagine, just for a moment, Joseph looking in his brother's eye, the very brother who was given 20 shekels of silver for his life. The very brother who stuck out his hand and took from those Midianite traders the money that sold Joseph into slavery. Very same brother standing 20 years later pleading for the life of Benjamin. Naturally, Joseph is overwhelmed with compassion and and he cries out, sending everyone away except for the 10 brothers. He can't wait any longer. He cries out to them, it's me. It's your brother, Joseph. Uncontrollably explained so much so and weeping as he tells them that the brothers are like, what's this guy talking about? They're clearly confused. If you look there in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like the, like the two men on the road to Emmaus as they walked with Jesus and didn't even know that it was Jesus they were walking with. They're dismayed at Joseph's figure as the light bulb sort of goes off. Wow, how did we miss this? So Joseph began to plead with his brothers. And he makes that tremendous argument in chapter 45. The central point and the resolution of the whole narrative. As Joseph reassures his brother that the Lord has been with him. And he's behind everything. That God was using the evil deeds of his brothers to bring about the salvation of the people of God. Look with me at verse 4 as Joseph says to his brothers. Come near me please. And they came near. And Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I now do not, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here. But God. He made me a father to Pharaoh. And Lord of all his house. And ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say. Thus says your son Joseph. God has made me Lord. Over all of Egypt. Well friends you don't need to be a scholar. To figure out what Joseph means. He means that God sent him there. He means that while his, Joseph, his brothers were the ones who, who sold him and Potiphar was the one who imprisoned him and the baker was the cupbearer, the ones who forgot him and so on and so forth. Joseph realizes that God was the one behind it all. As the proverb says, man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Joseph was walking through life, but ultimately it was God who was at work. He attributes all the events of his entire life to the work of God's sovereign grace to bring about the reconciliation of God's people and the preservation from famine. God's greater purpose was to save the covenant people. But before he could save them, they themselves had to be reconciled. How could they be a great nation if they were at civil war among one another? How is it that they could serve God and be a light to the nations when all they wanted to do is be self-serving, selfish babies? God used the events of Joseph's life to not only preserve, but to reconcile. We see this clearly displayed in Joseph's behavior with his brothers at the end of his lengthy speech. Look there at verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Ken Hughes has this wonderful uh, little phrase about this verse where he says... uh, 240 years of catching up. 10 years. 10 brothers and 20 years. and Catching up among all these brothers. A lot of stories to be sold. A lot of catching up to be done over these last 20 years as they talked with him. It brought about tremendous reconciliation. So much so that Joseph had to remind them in verse 24 as they went back to get their father. Notice this little... My ironic phrase, verse 24, then, then Joseph sent his brothers away, that is back to get their father, and they departed. And he said to them, don't quarrel along the way. Don't fight. What a needful word as that long journey would have been. As the Reuben perhaps would have spoken up again, hey, I told you guys we shouldn't have done that. Or Judah questioning himself or so on and so forth. They need not question what has happened. They need not question their past. You see, when sovereign grace enters into one's life, they recognize that no matter how dark the past, God's grace is reconciling grace. Brings about a new life. 
And in Christ, God has reconciled us into one covenant family. This is what we heard Pastor Rod read earlier in Ephesians 2. That for he himself is our peace. Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. God has broken down what was once dividing us and has united us into one new family, the church. And only through the cross of Christ can any type of reconciliation really occur, whether it be ethnic, whether it be economic, or whether it be enmity. Only through Christ will humanity ever experience peace. And as a congregation, we want to promote such unity among God's people. But remember that such unity only comes through God's sovereign, reconciling grace. God's sovereign grace in your individual life has a much bigger goal than you. And one of the things as a Christian in this particular context, in this particular culture of individualism, you must fight against is that God didn't save you to have a personal relationship with just you and Him. But He covenanted you together in a family Yes, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to celebrate that. But that you have been covenanted, reconciled, not only with God, but with man. Such that we are one people in Christ. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. What we see revealed to us in Revelation is that before God's throne is not this sort of uh, single ethnic gathering, but rather a multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual Gathering of God's people with the same blood in our veins. This is what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 45. Is God is reconciling through Christ. Well, as we think about these chapters, as we think about God's meticulous sovereignty over salvation and the preservation of his people and the reconciling work that he does, so often we tend to live with a sort of dashboard view or dashboard perspective on life. When you see things through the dashboard in your car, you have a certain perspective. You can only see what's in front of you and a little bit in your rear view mirror behind you. What we tend to focus on when we are in the dashboard mode of life is to focus just what's in front of us, just the immediacy, just what's just in our Eyes view. And it can be fine to have a, a dashboard up front view of life. We naturally are going to live that way. Naturally, we're going to think about in a few minutes, I'm going to go eat because I'm hungry. And then uh, we're going to plan for what we're going to have for dinner. And we might plan what we're doing tomorrow. We don't know. But when crisis comes, having a dashboard view often is catastrophic. You see, when crisis comes in that dashboard view in your car, all you can see is crisis, crisis, crisis in front of me. Stopped car, I'm going to slam into it. Deer in road, I'm going to plow into it. All you can see is the crisis. But having a helicopter view in the midst of crisis gives us a greater perspective. If we knew from the helicopter view that uh, there was a stopped car on the interstate when we're cruising at, you know, 80 miles an hour, we would slow down. Or if we had a helicopter view and saw the little herd of cute little deer out in the field and thinking, hey, they might run out into the road and we're going to run into them. Knowing what's coming five miles down the road helps us to prepare to react. And so it is with life. Having a divine perspective on your current sufferings and struggles helps you understand God's greater purposes. Where one does not find this helicopter perspective, where do we go to find it? Friend in the scriptures. God isn't going to reveal to you through a dream what's going to happen in your life five years from now or five minutes from now. But in the scriptures, by knowing what comes next in God's great sovereign plan, we know how to prepare. 
You see, God was up to something big in Joseph's life, and he had given Joseph that helicopter view. He knew what was going on. He knew what God was up to, that he was using him to save the world and to transform his brother's lives and to preserve them. God was sovereignly orchestrating the events to bring about a greater purpose, and he is doing the same today. God's sovereign, meticulous sovereignty isn't just something we read about in the past. God didn't stop when Jesus left uh, sovereignly caring for his creation and bringing about his redemptive purposes. No, Jesus for 2,000 years, we are told, has been reigning and ruling as a sovereign king over the affairs of men. We are told by Peter himself that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by God has been at work through Christ and in Christ today. His sovereign grace is displayed through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the body of Christ. Even now, God's grace exposes our guilt. God's grace forgives our sin. He sacrificially loves us in Christ and reconciles us to one another. Friend, trust your God who is in control, who is bringing about his eternal purposes. You are a child of God now, just as much as you will be in eternity. Believe it and live like it. This is the helicopter perspective you and I need to remember that God is sovereign over all things for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would know that you are a God who is in control. Lord, may we not just say it. May we, by faith, a fight of faith, believe it, live like it, trust you. Lord, give us that perspective, that divine perspective, that 30,000 foot view that that you're at work, that that you're in control, that the end is already done. You have purposed it. It is done. It is finished in Christ. For your glory and our eternal good, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we